This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Uh, we are in, uh, going to in, be engaged in a very good study this afternoon. Amen? Now, I know for those of you who are, have been into uh, satanic forms of formal education, I'm being facetious. Uh, I've, I've, I've graduated from a, a secular university and part of secular university campus ministries. Uh, when, you, when you get into a lecture mode, what, what automatically happens is you get into autopilot and you just kind of, and you sit through something, and it's very, 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 very discouraging for a, a presenter or a speaker to be in that kind of room. Amen? Oh, it started already. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Amen. So, and especially for a topic as a sanctuary we're going to cover today, what we need is, 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 is I don't know what we need, but we, we definitely need the Lord's blessing. We need the Holy Spirit, but we also need a kind of collective. We're in this together. Amen? Amen. We're in this together. It's Sabbath afternoon. It's time for lay activities, but we're not going to do lay activities. We're going to study scripture. Amen, everybody? Amen. Okay. Do you have your Bibles with you today? You will need your Bibles. This is the first part in a six-part series. And many people have been asking, like, oh, this is like there's so much stuff, blah, 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 blah. which one should I choose? I, I honestly can't say come to two, four, or six because they're all kind of linked with each other. This was originally a two-hour seminar back in GYC Europe, but it's been expanded to six hours, and we're covering a lot of stuff that I, I believe it's fundamental for every Seventh-day Adventist. And fundamental for every young Seventh-day Adventist. And if you're young, we're not going to insult you and say this is above your pay grade, or above your intelligence. This is something that all young people need to grapple with. Amen? Okay? So even though you, you feel the, if you feel the urge to fall asleep, stand up and walk around. You're totally allowed to do that. If you're falling asleep and you're Asian, just tape your eyes up really wide so that your, your, your eyes don't close because uh, surface area. Anyway, there's a whole science behind that. And then if, if you're walking around or you can take a nap in the back, but do whatever you got to do to stay awake. Amen? Amen? Amen, sister? You look angry. Are you okay? Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Okay. Okay, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, yeah, you also have something to write with and some notes. Okay? You will need note paper and notes, a notebook, get a, p- a piece of paper from your friend or get it on your iPhone or your Android, which is even better. Do something to get yourself engaged. Don't just put, be on autopilot. Amen, everybody? Okay, we're going to have a word of prayer and we're going to get started. And uh, this is the seminar entitled The Sanctuary Revelation in the Old Testament. This is a larger seminar series called The Revel- uh, not Revelation, The Revolution of Destiny. And I try to do the alliteration uh, and do the RR thing, and sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. Just, just go with the program, and, and it'll make all sense later on. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Gracious Father, Lord, we are about to embark on a deep study. And Father, and it, it can only be deep if your presence is here. So Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit, not just to bless us and to be with us, but to speak to our hearts. Lord, use our minds, use our bodies, use our very beings to communicate with us. For this is the essence of the, of the sanctuary message. Father, be with every uh, brother and sister in this room, and for every person who listens to this, to this message afterwards. Uh, Father, we want to be solid on your word. So grant us that experience here today, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Uh, Dudley Canwright was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. He left the church and became a Baptist. And we are going to cover uh, those Seventh-day Adventists who are in the church and also those uh, who are out of the church who are anti the sanctuary message. The Seventh-day Adventist message, the Seventh-day Adventist uh, denomination, is not just one other denomination. Amen, everybody? Now, I know a lot of people say that, a lot of people preach that, teach it, but we don't know the essence of it. The Seventh-day Adventist message, the, the whole theology, is based on one set of, 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 of data, and the data comes all from which book? The Bible. Uh, there, is no, there, are, there is no other denomination or systematic theology out there that is completely based on Scripture. And I don't say that triumphalistically. I say that as, as objective as, as possible. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist message in its core has the sanctuary message. It is the un, one of the, if not the only, unique component of our faith. Are there other Sabbath keepers out there? Okay, you have the Advent Christian Church, you have the, the Church of God, you have Seventh-day Baptists, you have Seventh-day Pentecostals, and you have Catholics who go to church on, uh, hold Mass on Sabbath, some of them. Okay, there's some Catholics who believe the Sabbath. Did you guys know that? There's some out there. There's like a weird hybrid, Bonnie only in America. Anyway, there are there other people who have the health message? Yes, you got people who are, who are eating granola in Seattle, and they're healthier than us Seventh-day Adventists. Amen? Why are you saying amen that other people are healthier than us? I mean, it's a reality. Amen? It's a reality. Yes, we need to be healthier. Amen? Amen? Okay, I'm going to be a little bit a little more animated. I'm, like, not, I'm not like this in real time, you understand. But it's... <laughs> But we need to, I'm trying to uh, prevent the, the Sabbath uh, effect. Not, not something that hold. okay, we've got to keep on going. All right, are there, other, are there other denominations who believe in the state of the dead as we do? Are there other people who believe, who have a version of the spirit of prophecy, a version of it? Yes. But are there, are there people who believe in a heavenly sanctuary? This is a unique component to our faith. And this is not just one other document, one other belief of the 28, one other, one other component, but I believe this is the central nexus of everything that we're all about. And the central nexus is centered on Jesus Christ. Amen? Are you guys, are you guys, are you guys happy to be Seventh-day Adventists? Yeah. Seventh-day Adventists are the fullest expression of, 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 of discipleship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not in the center of the Seventh-day Adventist message, it becomes one of the most highly dangerous denominations on earth. Do you understand? Most highly legalistic, highly volatile belief systems on this earth. But if Jesus is in the middle of it, it is the best thing this earth has ever seen. Amen? So the sanctuary is all about the ministry of Jesus. And Dudley Canwright said this comment, and I don't agree with his thought process. I agree with his statement. He says, Seventh-day Adventists make everything turn upon their view of the sanctuary. It is vital with them. If they are wrong on this, their whole what? Well, what happens to it? Why study the sanctuary? I'm going to ask you, these are, these are different reasons why, from the scriptures, why we should study the sanctuary. And then this, this uh, afternoon's presentation is a basic introduction for those of you who are not be maybe familiar with some of the components of the sanctuary. Psalms 29.9 says, The voice of the Lord makes the hinds to calve and discovers the forest. Just ignore that first part. The second part says, In his temple does everyone speak of his what? Glory. So when we study the, 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 the sanctuary or the temple or the tabernacle or this, this, this holy place or holy of holies and this, this thing, 
we will understand more about God's. And what is glory? Is glory like, oh, is that glory? Is glory like, like the entire stadium is standing up and saying, go. If you're from South America, like you won't stop saying go. Is that, is that what glory is? Did Jesus make a, make a goal that everyone is just was awesomely praising him for? No. Glory is a reflection of God's character. Okay? And if you don't get that, then you've got to read these Art of Ages and Great Controversy and Patient Prophets all over again. Okay? It's just really simple reads there. Okay? Now, Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 10 and 11 says this, O son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their... Okay, it's up on the screen. We're going to do it one more time. You're going to be with me in tempo, okay? Are you with me so far? Ezekiel 43, 10, 11. Thou, son of man, show the, house of, house of the, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure the pattern. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, show them from the form of the house, the fashion thereof, the goings thereof, the comings thereof, all the forms thereof, all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, the laws thereof, and write it in their sight that they may, be keeping, they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. I didn't, the word thereof is just there, all there. Uh, the first part is the most important part. It says, if you study the house or study the sanctuary, you may be ashamed of your so the first reason why we study the sanctuary is we understand God's character. Second part is we will be ashamed of our iniquities. More than that is we will understand what happens to sin. All of you. How many of you have sinned today? Raise your hands. It's not a trick question. Okay, maybe that was a trick question. Okay, now when you sin and you ask for forgiveness, what happens to that sin? Now, a lot of people say, oh, Lord, forgive me because I ate, you know, uh, shrimp. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I kicked my, my sister, okay? I, I, I don't have a sister, but I kicked her. You, you committed a sin. Lord, forgive me. What happens to that sin? Does it go, poof? Does it, does it, does it disappear? Now, there's, there's an evangelical thought that says, well, that, that sin gets transferred to Jesus, and when Jesus died, that sin also dies with him. Boof. Is that what we believe? If you study the sanctuary, we will understand what happens to sin in the end. If that's clear, please say amen. Number three, Psalm 73, verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. The context of this verse is this. Well, uh, David, I think David's reading, uh, writing this, I'm not sure. But he's looking at the bad people, and they are prospering. Then he looks at himself, and he's not a bad person, he's a good person, and he's not prospering. And he's asking God, uh, God, why are those dudes over there who are bad, why are they prospering, and why am I not? Is this a legit question? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Lord, I keep the Sabbath, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, I, I eat kind of like veggie meat once in a while, I'm trying to be vegan for the ninth time, and, and I go to GYC, and, and those guys over there who are drunk on Friday night, man, they're like the president of, of the world, like why are you blessing them and not me, right? And his conclusion to that, that, that whole experience in verse 17 is this, until I went into the what of what? Then I understood what really happens to those people, Okay? So there's an eschatological understanding 
of, 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 the, of the sanctuary. If you don't know what that word means, you'll find out later. Revelation 11, 1 and 2 says this, There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and all these other things. The other portion of why we should study the sanctuary is we will understand the last day prophecies. And if you don't understand the sanctuary, Daniel and Revelation will be a total mystery to you. And they'll freak you out. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but does Daniel and Revelation freak you out? Don't raise your hands. You need to understand the sanctuary to understand general revelation. And especially for Seventh-day Adventists in these last days, we need to understand one book of, of more than any other book. And which book is that? Revelation. In order to understand revelation, you need to understand Genesis through Jude. Amen? So might as well study the entire... Next verse. John 1.14 says this, And the Word was made, what? Flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His... The glory as of the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and of truth. Verse 14 says, the word was made flesh and dwelt. In Greek, that word dwelt is the word tabernacled or templed or sanctuaryized amongst us. And the way I imagine is this, and I have a weird imagination, and if this offends you, forgive me, but that's just how I see it. I, I just, there, there are superheroes out there who are made of, of, of complete energy. And I, th- and I see if God is like this complete holiness and energy being. If God were to manifest himself in this room right now, what would happen to all of us? We'd be... Okay? We'd be like a nuclear you know, effect going on. We'd be, we'd be eviscerated. Is that a real word? We'd be... Okay? And so God, because his heart, his character, he wants to so much be with his people, but if he is physically, we're completely wiped out. In the New Testament... This, this, this Shekinah glory, power, energy, or whatever, God, His presence, His holiness, has to be encapsulated in some kind of form. And that form in the New Testament is the very what? Flesh of humanity. Incarnated in the body and the person of Jesus Christ. Make sense? But in the Old Testament, this was the what? The sanctuary. And so everything about the sanctuary points towards Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, after this study, my prayer is this, that the studies of, 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 of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy be your favorite books of the Bible. Amen? How many of you are going to read through the Bible in 2013? Raise your hands. Make that your New Year resolution and resolve that you're going to go through Genesis, and Genesis is super happy, nice, you know, Uncle Arthur stories. Exodus, first half is awesome, Prince of Egypt, like, pfft stuff happening, and then the second half of Exodus, kind of what happens? Whoa. And then you go into Leviticus, whoa. And the numbers is like, I give. you just got to persevere. But if you have the sanctuary in mind, and I hope after this presentation you'll, you'll get it, Leviticus is one of the most Christ, Christocentric, Christ-centered books in the entire Bible. Super awesome. Numbers, kind of awesome. I'm trudging along. Deuteronomy is Jesus' favorite book because he quotes most from there. We've got to keep on going. Okay, let's keep on going. Okay, Jewish economy. This is from um, Christ Object Lessons, page 133. Whenever there is an Ellen White quote super long, I zone out. Please don't zone out. Amen? Oh, you're discouraging me, friends. Okay, so I want to say happy Sabbath. The quote reads, The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. 
truths vast and profound are shadowed, for, uh, shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding far more than we do. It is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. Angels desire to look into the truths that are revealed to the people who with contrite hearts are searching the word of God and praying for greater lengths and breadths and depths and heights for the knowledge which he alone can give. Awesome quote, yes? Now, the Jewish economy there in the first line does not mean the Dow Jones of Israel. Amen? Amen? Hello? Hey, back people, amen? You guys are all late, you back people. You guys are, we're late. You don't be late again, okay? I'm, it's a happy, happy Sabbath. <laughs> Why does everyone look so mad in the, in the back? And yeah, we love you. Uh, in the first, the first line, the Jewish economy does not mean the Dow Jones of Israel. It means the whole life, the whole uh, economy, the, the, the agriculture, the calendar, the times, the, the ins and outs of that world were all about one person. Foreshadowing who? Jesus Christ. It's a complete system. This is an awesome quote. Um, GC, Great Controversy, page 423. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the what of what? The disappointment of? 1844. Okay? It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light to position and the work of his people. Light from the sanctuary illumined the past, the present, and the future. The sanctuary is like this humongous key that unlocks everything for us in these last days. Um, that I, heard a, I went to the seminary and there was a systematic theologian that says, today there are only two systematic theologies in the world today. One is from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is a systematic, complete theology, meaning you knock one doctrine down, what happens to the whole system? Domino effect. The other systematic theology, guess what, is, is, is what? It's Roman Catholicism. The set of data that the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is based upon is Scripture. The Roman Catholic system is based upon Scripture and one more set of data, being known as? Tradition, and they are very, very accurate with those two premises and basises. The rest of Protestantism takes and chooses, and it's not a systematic theology, meaning you can take one doctrine and take it out, and you can have the other guys stand alone by themselves. Whereas in a systematic theology, you take one thing down, what happens to the entire system? Okay, repeat after me. Okay, you like that. Okay, go. Um, there are some evidences of a proto-sanctuary. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. I know it's on the PowerPoint, but don't be lazy and open it up in Scripture right now as we're actually studying it. Amen? And you're right in your Bibles. I encourage everybody, write in your Bibles, circle, highlight, you know, draw, you know, act, you know uh, what is it, diagrams, happy faces. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Are you there? Okay, hurry up. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I'm being facetious. I'm not. Please, I hope no one takes offense. I'm just trying to move things along today. Amen, everybody? Okay. I'm very sensitive to people's faces. And uh, the Asian community does not, does not smile when they listen. It's just like, we want to eat you. That's like the face they have. Anyway, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24. If you're there, please say amen. 
Verse 24 reads, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Here you see a a proto-sanctuary. It's not the actual sanctuary, but you see the beginnings of something happening here. Cherubim are not uh, naked babies who fly around. Amen? Cherubim are forms of angels, and we're going to actually study the cherubim here today. These cherubim, they're, they're the, the I am at the end denotes a plurality, meaning there's two. So you have two angels guarding at the eastern side. And in between these angels, you have a what? A flaming presence. Here in Genesis, it says a sword. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is a quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged what? Sword. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, here you see the actual Shekinah glory described. Verse 4, and I looked, and behold... A whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding in itself. Uh, the brightness was about it. Out of the midst thereof was an amber, a color of amber, and out of the midst of it, fire. Here you have a, a, a pillar of a cloud and a fire folding in with itself. This is the Shekinah glory. In verse 24, it says, He drove out the man and he placed. That word placed in Hebrew is the word Shekinah, where we get the word Shekinah. Okay? So here, Shekinah's glory, the God's presence, is actually placed here. And what's happening is this. Adam and Eve sinned, and God kicked them out because he was angry, and he says, you're never going to come inside of my house ever again. Is that what Scripture says? It was the plan of Satan, found in verse 22 and 23, that Adam and Eve were to be tempted to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and after eating that, they were to eat of which tree after that? Tree of life meaning they were to become sinners, and then they were to have sin, become sinners with the tree of life. They would become sinners for forever. And to prevent this from happening, God says, you need to leave, and he's making sure that this would never happen, and he, asks, and he drives man out. From this point on, the antediluvian world came back to this presence and worshipped in front of this presence. Do you understand? Angels and the presence of God was on this earth. And then the spirit of prophecy says it wasn't until the flood that this presence left. So it's all those antediluvians, they actually saw angel number one, angel number two, and the Shekinah glory right there. And, the east, and right behind they saw a tree with a missing apple or a missing whatever fruit that fruit it was. Okay? And Adam was telling everyone, yep, that's where your grandmother took that apple and she gave it to me. And I, and I ate of it also. So it's not a girl's fault, it's our fault. And he was telling all these people about this. That's why at the flood, all these people were desperately wicked because they had full evidence and they still, what? Rejected it all. Make sense? Let's keep on going. Genesis 4, verse 3, In process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground to an offering to the Lord. It's not described here in, in Genesis, but all these antediluvians were given instructions on how this whole process would work. Verse 4, And Abel... He also brought up the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. You all know the story. You should be familiar with it. Here what you have is the beginnings of a sanctuary service happening at the Garden of Eden. If that's clear, please say amen. In Exodus, you see Exodus 25, verse 8. This, I believe, is a verse that every Seventh-day Adventist must memorize. Must what, everybody? Please repeat after me. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The most powerful force in the universe 
is the desire to hang out. Do you understand? The most powerful force is that God simply wants to hang out with who? With all of us. But He can't because of the problem of sin. So in the Old Testament, he devises a sanctuary system that points forward to Jesus Christ, that eventually will point forward to the ministry of Jesus. This is an awesome, 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 awesome thing. Verse 22, it says, There I will meet with you, and I will commune with you. So in verse 25, verse 8, we have dwelling with you. In verse 22, God wants to hang out and talk with you. Amen? 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 When Sabbath is over, and once all GYC program is over today, what is the most powerful force here amongst every GYC attendee? Bed. bed. <laughs> that, that, that's just true. The sleep is a powerful force. But every young person also wants to hang out with other people, yes? Yes or no? And here God's saying, hey, let's, I just want to hang out dwelling, dwell, 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 dwell. Later on in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word dwell is found there again. Uh, this is from Desire of Ages 23 and 24. Big quote, but awesome is juicy, okay? Amen, everybody? It's juicy. Amen? Um, don't, don't be discouraged. I'm going to read it. God commanded Moses for Israel, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And he abode in the sanctuary in the midst of his people. Through all their weary wandering in their desert, the symbol of his presence was with them. So, Christ set up his tabernacle in the midst of our human encampment. He pitched his tent by the side of the tents of men, that he might dwell amongst us and make us familiar with his divine character and life. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Full of, uh, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament there, and, in, and the New Testament, there are four models of the sanctuary. The first sanctuary that we see is the mosaic tabernacle or the tent. That's the one that we imagine, like is a, is a, it's a tent flapping in the wind. And then there's a, they're carrying it around wherever they go. They're in the middle of the desert. And when it, what, ha- what would happen is the Shekinah glory would, 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 would rise up. And when it, when it rose up, all the Israelites knew, oh, it's time to go. And everyone would pack up their stuff. And we're going to actually go into each of the items and furniture items of the sanctuary. And they would move and follow where the sanctuary, the, the Shekinah glory would go. And then the Shekinah glory would stop. And from right where that presence is, right underneath, they'd start, start building the most holy place. And from that point on, the holy place and then the entire sanctuary and then the entire camp afterwards. They were moving in the wilderness for 40 years. And after a while, David says, hey, we've got to have an actual... Uh, a real place for God. I'm in this palace, and God's still in this ghetto tent. Let's make this awesome thing for the Lord also. And God says, no, David, you're too ghetto. We're going to go ask Solomon, your son. And Solomon's like, awesome, I'm not ghetto. So verse number two, or number, the second temple here, is what they call the first temple. The first what, everybody? First temple. Solomon Temple was super awesome, laid with gold and jewels. It was like the Disney World of the Middle East, like super, super, super awesome. But later on, Babylon came and then just made it into a pancake. The third one is the Ezekielian Temple. The Ezekielian Temple are chapters, reams and reams of chapters, of, the, of describing a detailed sanctuary in the book of Ezekiel. But question, was the Ezekielian Temple ever built? There is no record of this. And many scholars, many theologians are asking, whoa, what, what does this describe? 
And the best conclusion is, hey, this probably describes another sanctuary that's not built yet. From the other portions, other evidences of Scripture, we find there is another temple in this universe found where? Upstairs in heaven. And I believe that's what it's describing. Later on, when, when Ezra and Nehemiah come back, they rebuild the temple. That's why they call it the second temple or the Zerubbabelian temple. And uh, it was kind of, kind of, kind of half-baked, and it was kind of ghetto, whatever. And in comes Herod, Herod the Great. And because he's a half-Edomite, he's, he's insecure, he's not a real Jew, and he wants to win the affections of the real, the, 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 the real Jewish leaders, so he makes it super awesome. And it takes a very long time to build it. And they finish building it in 69 AD. After building it in 69 AD, guess what happens just one year later? Romans come and they eat it for breakfast. Okay? And we're going to talk about the history of that a little bit later as well. This is, a, this is not a real diagram or a photograph. We don't have any photographs of, of that time period. But this is a computerized rendition that, that I got off of Internet Google Images. And I don't have any copyright off of this. So if this is illegal, forgive me. But here you have candlesticks, you have the no, holy place, inside the holy place, inside, you have the golden candlesticks, the golden show, table of showbread, golden altar of incense, and you have the veil, and then inside the veil you have the most holy place where you find the Ark of the Covenant. Here in Exodus 27, verse 9 through 19, um, this is not uh, drawn to scale, but you, hear, you see here the entire sanctuary. And what you see here is a diagram for a lot of things. Um, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. In the middle here, you have the most holy place. And the most holy place was uh, in the exact dimensions of a cube. Of a what, everybody? Now, this is huge. Because what happens is the sanctuary becomes like one of the greatest uh, 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 contextual backgrounds for the entire, for the Bible. What that means is this. It's kind of like an inside joke. A what, everybody? An inside joke is something that only some people understand. Yes? And this, there's, there's millions of insights. Even here at GYC, I was just walking uh, here, and someone said, Dude, remember the banana? And the other guy's like, Oh, I remember the banana. And they started laughing. I'm like, What are you laughing about? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, from my context, is they are talking about a what? But they are not talking about a... They're talking, I don't know what they're talking They're talking about something else that's not a banana. Amen? So then when I'm looking into that conversation, I'm thinking they are either hungry or they are weird or they are, something's going on. I don't have that context that they have. Now what happens is in the Bible and all throughout Scripture, the sanctuary will be the background context for a lot of stuff. So when there's animals like rams and goats and, and beasts and horns and all these things, if you're, if you're not familiar with the context, you may be like, whoa, this is like a banana. I don't get it. But once you get the inside joke, you're like, oh, dude, the banana. You understand? And all Seventh-day Adventists must have a banana experience. Amen? Amen? <laughs> So here you have a cube. The most holy place was a cube. Later on in the book of Revelation, there's another cube. Yes or no? Where is that cube? The New Jerusalem, says the sister in the back. I don't know who said it. And then the cube is a reference back to the most holy, uh, most holy place. 
Here you have an altar of incense, a table of showbread, and lampstand. The holy place was twice the length of the most holy place. Everything inside the most holy place and the holy place was made out of gold. And super, super clean inside, holy inside. This is the sanctuary. Outside of the sanctuary, you have the cleansing labor, that's the black dot, and the altar of burnt offering. And those two things were made out of bronze. It looked like gold, but it wasn't gold. Made out of wood, but overlaid with bronze. And out there was sand, and whenever um, uh, a penitent person would come in, they'd, they'd have access to the courtyard, but they were not allowed inside to the holy place. But priests were allowed in the holy place. And they had to wash at the cleansing labor before they came to the holy place. But priests were not allowed in the most holy place. But only one person was allowed in the most, uh, most holy place. Who's that? The high priest. And all these things will be just... It, I know it's like, whoa, this, but it will all be like... After a while, okay? So you've got you to gotta just... With me, okay? Colors. There are a lot of colors in the, in the sanctuary. Um, let's go with the first one. You have the color white. In today's culture, color does not mean a lot. Yes? Okay, we look, I look at all of you today. Sister is wearing pink. Sister is wearing red. Uh, dudes are all wearing like black, gray, white, blue, uh, green. Uh, today, we just wear colors as an expression of our individuality. But in the old and ancient days, colors were very, very expensive. Everybody wore the color brown or black or gray. But if you had some money, you would actually dye your... your um, not a suit, but you know whatever you know. Guys wore dresses too, so they they, they garments. Garments is the, is the right word. So if you're something that was white, it was very very ex- expensive. There's meaning attached. Now think about it as this: you're in the middle of a desert. What color is a desert? Okay, depending on what kind of desert you're in. Okay, the painted desert is is pretty colorful. Okay, so the desert is just uh, yes, amen. It's color, and in the middle of the desert is a white building. Okay, now this is a portable building. On the outside, fifty by hundred cubits was was these white curtains, a white, white, white. There's a framework, curtains, and these these white pieces of linen flapping in the wind. White denoted, according to Isaiah one eighteen. Go to Isaiah one eighteen. Let's actually look at all these. It's very good. You should know this. Be familiar with it. Verse 18, the Bible says, Come now, let us reason. Together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, is another word for the color red, they shall be as white as snow. And so there's a, there's a concept of purity and cleanliness. Revelation 19 denotes the same, the cleanness of the saints. Red, we just read it in Isaiah 1.18, same thing. And also in Hebrews 9.19 denotes death, sacrifice, sin. Death going on. Blue is a, is, a, is a symbol for, let's go to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Chapter 24 verse 9, are you there? Okay, hurry up. Hurry up, everybody. Hurry up, hurry up. Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament. Chapter 24 is after chapter 23, at least in the King James Version. Or whatever version you have, if it's fine with whatever version you have. Verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. And then, get this, get this, verse 10. Get this, get this, verse 10. 
they saw the who of who? God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of what kind of stone? So underneath Jesus' feet is a, is, is, a, is a sapphire stone. What color is sapphire? It's blue. And as it, and it uh, continuing on, and it... And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness, skip down to verse 12, the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the mount and be there and I will give thee tables of what? Now, in, in English, it says stone without any article attached to it. In English, there are two articles. You have a stone or you have the stone. A stone denotes what? whatever random stone out there. The stone denotes a what? A previous reference point. In this passage, was there a previous stone mentioned? Verse 10. So here, verse 12, you have Moses coming down. In my imagination, you have Charleston Heston coming down in his red robe and humongous beard. And he does not, the Bible says, he does not have two you know, concrete things with Roman numerals. And that's bizarre why Roman numerals would have showed up in Hebrew history. Yes? Like I, 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 V. That's Roman, if you know history, that's later. Anyway, so he's coming down with two humongous pieces of sapphire stone. They're the color blue. If you go to Numbers 15, the, the, the Israelites were instructed to put a hem of blue around, so every time they saw the color blue, they'd be reminded of the Ten Commandments. So blue was always associated with law. Today in our culture, <clears throat> we have a lot of our law systems are associated with blue. Police officers are associated with blue. Authorities, uh, structural systems, blue. You have the blue laws with Sunday. Blue and laws are associated with together each other. Red mixed with blue equals what? You have purple. In John chapter 19, verse 2 and 5, and in Acts 16, 14, purple was a symbol of royalty. So in Acts chapter 16, you have Lydia, who is a seller of the... The purple. She's not some kind of hot dog vendor in Axe who's selling, you know, blue, blue markers. She's actually a high-class fashion fashionista who's sending high-class clothes to the upper class of society. That's why Paul does outreach to her. Here you have these four colors that symbolize the sanctuary. Now get this. Here you have the entire camp. Scholars say this camp was about 13 miles long. Here, uh, let's say... Justin Kim sins. I drop-kicked my sister. I need to ask for forgiveness. So here, I'm burdened with sin. I'm going to go to my flock of sheep. The sheep have to be spotless, without blemish. And these sheep are not just random sheep. These, I cared for these sheep. So I'm going to choose the best sheep. I'm going to go to Fluffy. Okay, Fluffy, I'm sorry. I need to atone for my sin. Takes the Fluffy and puts Fluffy on my, my, my shoulders. And I'm walking towards the sanctuary. And I'm full of guilt. Oh, i got to kill Fluffy. Fluffy and I grew up together. Fluffy, you know, we cuddled together and fall asleep. Now i got to kill Fluffy. Oh, no. And I'm walking and walking and walking. And as I approach the sanctuary, the first color that I see on the outside is what color? Is white. And I say, man, I can be cleansed of my guilt. The color is a sign of hope. Then he goes to the front door, and the front door had three colors. What colors are they? Red, blue, and purple. He's like, man... Red is the color of sacrifice and sin. Something needs to die. But blue is the color of law, justice. Mercy and justice will be given at this place. 
But when you mix these two together, what color do you get? You get purple. This is the place of my king. This is, this, this is a whole message around the colors. Here, also, their address was huge. Go to Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2, verse 1. Are you there? Numbers chapter 2. You guys got to bring your Bibles. Get a faster OS system on your phones to get to your verses faster. Can't be getting off the internet. You got to download it on your phone. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Numbers. Are you there? The Bible reads, The Lord spake unto Moses unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. The ensign is kind of like a logo, okay, or a flag. Far off the tabernacle of the congregation in which they, pit, they shall pitch. Verse 3, On the eastern side, in the Hebrew mind, the point of reference is the east. The east is number one in their mind. In a Western American culture, what is the point of reference for us? It's north. Why? Because the compass always points north. But in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Middle Eastern uh, context, this is where the sun rises. Verse 3. On the east side toward the rising of the sun shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies, and Nashon, the son of Abimelech, shall the captain of the children of Judah. Okay? Forgive me, I, don't, I can't pronounce these. So if you look here, we're going to read this entire chapter, but you see on the bottom, and I don't know why this graphic has east on the bottom, but just turn your heads to the side to make the east the east. Okay? Now, <laughs> you, you all did it. Okay, so east, you have Judah. Yeah? Do you guys see that? East is red, and you have Judah. And then in verse 5, And those that pitch next to him shall be the tribe of who? Ishakar, very good. Verse 7, Then the tribe of Zebulun. So you have those three tribes. Ishakar, Judah, Zebulun. But of the three tribes, the one that's foremost is the tribe of who? Judah. Okay? Now this is all makes sense. Just follow me here. Okay? Let's keep on going. Verse 10. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of who? Reuben, not the sandwich, but the person. Reuben, according to their armies, and the captain of the children of Reuben shall be Eliezer, son of Shadur. Verse 12, and those that pitch by him shall be the tribe of Simeon. Verse 14, of the tribe of, then the tribe of Gad. So then you have on the south here, the main tribe is Reuben. But then you have Gad and Simeon. And then you go to verse uh, 18. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim, according to their armies. The captain of the sons of Ephraim shall be Elishma, the son of Amihud. Verse 20, by him shall be the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 22, and then the tribe of Benjamin. So you have up there in the west, you have Ephraim, the main tribe. You have his other brother Manasseh, and you have Benji there. And in verse 25, the standard of the camp of Dan shall be the north side by their armies. Verse 27, those that encamp by him shall be the tribe of Asher. Verse 29, you have the tribe of Naphtali. Okay? This makes sense. You have all these tribes, 12 tribes. Pretty simple, yes? Anyone confused? Okay. So you have east, you have Judah. You got south, you got Reuben. You got west, you got Ephraim. And Dan, you got in the north. Everybody's address was, was prearranged and organized all in reference to the Shekinah glory. Do you understand? So they'd be, all be hanging out, and the Shekinah glory would, would, would arise. I'm like, whoa, God's on the move. You've got to move. So then who would go first is, and then the Shekinah glory would go, then you have the, the eastern guys go first, then the southern guys, then all the Levites, then you have the western guys and northern guys. They all go, and then the Shekinah glory stops, like we said before. And right underneath the Shekinah glory, the, whole, the most holy place, the holy place, the sanctuary, the Levites make camp. 
from that point on, from that point of reference, you have in the north, goes the northern guys, the south, the south guys, the west, the west, and the east, and the east. Even their address was all um, in reference to the Shekinah glory. Okay? So it's clear, everybody? Now you have these four main tribes. Let's go to uh, Genesis 49. Genesis 49. <clears throat> oh, we'll take questions afterwards, yeah? Actually, Genesis 49, verse 1. Jacob comes, calls unto his sons and says, Gather yourselves together. Jacob's about to die, and he gathers all of his dudes together. Verse 3, he says to Reuben, You're my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. But you are, verse 4, unstable as water. Uh, thou shalt not excel, because you went us up to your father's bed. Thou defilest thou it. You went to my couch. Here, Reuben is supposed to be the firstborn. He's supposed to be the messianic inheritor. He was supposed to have a double portion of the inheritance. He was supposed to be the priest. But the dude sleeps with his stepmoms, and he messes stuff up. This is Jerry Springer to the max. So verse 5, Simeon and Levi are the next guys in charge, but they're super cruel. Uh, In verse 6, it says there that they hamstrung an ox. The super cruel thing to do is you take an ox, super big animal, super muscular, and what you do is you take a knife, and if you cut its hamstring in the back, it's unable to control its two back legs just from cutting one ligament. And what happens is, the humongous beast of strength looks stupid. And it's all like boggling up and down. And you can just imagine, these two brothers are kicking back and pointing at it and laughing at it. These two brothers are instruments of cruelty. They also later, they kill all the people that that raped their sister. Verse 8 is Judah. Are you with me? Verse 8. Verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom shall brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be the neck on your enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. For my prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he cast as a lion, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up. So the logo, the flag, the ensign for the tribe of Judah was the animal of, guess which animal? The lion. Let's skip down to verse, um, verse 16. And he goes to each of all his other sons. In verse 16, it says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for my salvation, O Lord. Dan's logo was the was a snake. But how many of you would like having a snake as your logo for your people? So what eats snakes? Yeah, then their, their logo, you had an, an eagle. I know it looks like a chicken or a vulture in that picture, but it's really an eagle. And in the eagle's talents was a, was a what? was a snake. Today, there are modern logos that, that look like this. Have you ever seen an eagle with a snake in its, in its claws? Okay, it's on your dollar bills, if you didn't notice. Okay? Now, go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Flip, 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 flip. Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33. Verse 6, this is where Moses is about to die and he's blessing each of the tribes. In verse 6, he says, Let Reuben live and not die. Let not his men be few. And so on Reuben's logo was man, just a dude. Okay, so you have Reuben. I don't know why he's holding a bunch of grapes and he's standing like that, but that's, that's his logo. In verse, uh, verse 17, his glory is like the firstling of his bullock. His horns are like the horns of a unicorn's. By the way, did you know there are such things as unicorns in the world? How many believe in unicorns? 
Okay, it's not the animal with like a, a horn coming out of its head, but in, in Africa, there's a humongous animal that has one horn sticking out of his forehead. We call it a what? A rhinoceros. In Latin, it's called a unicornus. It's a unicorn. Okay? It's not an animal that flies with rainbows and sparkles around with rainbow bright. Okay? That's not what the Bible is talking about. Verse 17, in case you were wondering. I know some of you were thinking that. Verse 17. With them, he shall push the people together. And by the way, unicorns, unicorns rhinoceroci, rhinoceroci, those animals, they push against their enemies. Okay? Verse 17. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. They are as the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So Ephraim has been associated with the bull. So you have these four animals here. You have Reuben in the south, a man. You got Judah in the east, a lion. You got Ephraim in the, as, a, as, a, as an ox in the, in the west. And you got Dan as an eagle with, a, with a, 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 a snake in its claws in the north. Here you have a composite picture with the same exact animals found in Ezekiel chapter 1. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, you have the Shekinah glory coming down. And this, is, this, is, this, is, this is like one of the craziest studies. The Shekinah glory has, is, on a, is on a throne, the throne of God. And on the bottom of the throne of God, you have four wheels. And inside these wheels, you have these, 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 these beings and angels do not look like Caucasian people that are, that are monosexual and they have like blue eyes and blonde hair. Those are not angels. Amen, everybody? Angels are part ox, part lion, part human, part... The, the, this is an artist's representation of what... Uh, and by the way, the directions are totally wrong, but there's a composite figure of this. Verse, uh, go to verse 4. I looked, and behold, a, wind, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, a fire enfolding in itself. A brightness was about it. Out of the midst thereof was the color of amber. Verse 5, out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a what? Verse 6, everyone had four faces, four wings. Verse 7, they had straight feet. And then skip down to verse 8. They had the hands of a man underneath their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went uh, they went everyone straight forward. Verse 10, get this, verse 10. As for their likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a what? Face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side. Even directionally, this totally fits. On the right side, on the eastern side. First, they had a face, uh, they four had the face of an ox on the left side, the west, and they four also had the face of an eagle on the north. Okay? Again, this is not a accurate of, of, of this thing, but here you have these four pictures four faces on these angels. You have these four characteristics on the addresses of all the 12 tribes. What's going on here? Here you have the four faces of Jesus. What's happening here is every detail, every component of of the sanctuary is in reference back to Jesus. Even the angels reflect Jesus. Here on the eastern side, you have Judah, of the, tri- the, the, the lion here. The lion was the king of beasts. He was fearless and majestic. The king was a symbol of kingship. The lion was a symbol of kingship. In the Gospel of Matthew, the one word that is repeated more than any other word than any other gospel is the word what? Kingdom. And the point of Matthew is to prove that Jesus is the king of the, the Jews. And ultimately, king of all kings. Amen? Jesus is, is king. Amen, everybody? Amen. Number two, south, you have Reuben, you have a man. 
Man is the king of all living things. He is sympathetic. He is empathetic. He is a communicator. Not all other animals have this ability to do this. In the Gospel of Luke, the phrase that is repeated there more than any other time is, Son of Luke records that Jesus was born of the woman who? Who is Jesus' mother, everybody? Mary. Meaning he had human origins. Whereas in Matthew, the beginning point was he's a descendant of David the king, he's a descendant of Abraham, he's a king. King's genealogy. Whereas Luke is trying to prove that he's a human being. In Luke, there's a huge emphasis on how Jesus ministered to Gentiles, non-Jews. There's emphasis in Luke on how Jesus ministered to females, not just males. Luke is a universal uh, picture of Jesus, how he's a sympathetic, empathetic uh, 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 son of man. In the West, you have Ephraim, the ox. The ox is the king of domestic animals, is a burden bearer, patient, toiling, sacrificial animal. In the Gospel of Mark, the one word that's repeated over and over again is the word what? Immediately. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is not a preacher. He is not one who's, who's talking. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking a lot. But in the Gospel of Mark, he's going here and he did this. Immediately he goes here, he did this. And immediately this happened. This, it's all about actions. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a burden bearer who toils late at night and he's healing humanity of their sins. And in the north, you have Dan, the eagle. He's the king of birds, foresight, insight, transcendent. You have the gospel of John. The word that's repeated over and over is that Jesus is the Son of God. So therefore, therefore you should all believe. Now, you have a composite picture here. Jesus is the divine Son of God. Jesus is the human Son of Man. Jesus is the suffering servant. But Jesus is also the what? The King of Kings. Jesus is all for components, all four identities in one. There are some people who are so amazing, so incredible, that it doesn't take one story, but four perspectives to give the fullest picture of Jesus Christ. Amen? When you look at a diamond, can you look at a diamond in all of its glory from one perspective? You can't. You look at a diamond, you see it's shining in this. Bling, 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 bling. But the minute you turn around and you want to see more of its blinging, you actually lose sight of, its, of the previous bling. Amen? So you've got to go around in a circle looking at it. But when you look at it in a circle, can you see the entire bling all in one shot? No, you look, like, you look stupid doing this, right? Here, Jesus has so much glory, so much blinging going on, that it takes not just four Gospels, but you have the angels and reflection of, reflection of God. You have the four faces of God. You have even your address reflects the character of God. Everything is reflecting the character of Jesus. Amen. Question is this. As a follower of the Lord Jesus, do you believe that you are part, you have a component in, 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 in being linked with divinity to some, in some way? Do you believe that you are now part of the king priesthood of Jesus Christ, order of Melchizedek? You are now part of a king, the, the, the family of the king of kings. Do you believe sacrificially that we should be also suffering servants for the gospel cause? And do you also believe that Jesus came to this earth to teach us how to be human? Now, where are you on this grid? Jesus was right smack in the middle. 
in the most holy place. Amen? This sanctuary is a grid for Jesus' character. It's a grid for a lot of things. We're going to cover this in the next five seminars. Number one, it is an eschatological timeline, meaning the outer courtyard represented what Jesus did on this earth. That the altar of burnt incense and the cleansing labor described Jesus' ministry on earth. In the holy place, it goes from A.D. 31, his ascension, to 1844, and describe what Jesus did in heaven. Amen? This is clear. After 1844, and we're going to talk about all these dates, what did Jesus do from 1844 to 2JC is another symbol for what? The second coming of Jesus. Jesus is in that room, and he's doing something on our behalf. Get this. If you don't get anything in, if you're like, whoa, that pastor came, he's talking about lions and eagles and snakes and, and, and blinging, okay? The whole point is this. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Because no one else in this earth does. Do you know that? Some people think Jesus is preparing a place for you in heaven. Is that true? Absolutely. But does that mean he's choosing the curtains that you like and the carpets of your mansions and building swimming pools for you? Is that what Jesus is doing? Jesus is not a carpenter. Well, he, is a- he was a carpenter. You understand. But when Jesus went to heaven, he's not just sitting around and watching what we're doing. Jesus is actually doing something. And in 1844, he did something else. Does that mean the merits of the cross are now ended at 1844? Not at all. We're going to talk about all these things. The sanctuary gives an eschatological timeline. Number two, there are also anthropological parallels. The outer courtyard has to do with the physical component of your body. Yeah? It's clean. It had to do with uh, the exterior. The holy place had to do with the mental components. You have the light of God in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the candlesticks. You have the bread, the word of God. You're eating the, the scriptures. And then you have the most holy place. You have the, most, the spiritual component. You also have the soteriological diagram. This means salvation. Justification occurred in the courtyard. Sanctification occurred in the, mo- in the holy place. Glorification will occur where? In the most holy place. And lastly, you have escalo- escal- ecclesiological emphases. These are just long, big words that makes me sound smarter than I really am. Okay? If you really want to know what's the- what they mean, just look it up in the dictionary or Google it. But here, you have a group of people who are obsessed with the courtyard ministry. What do we call them? Evangelical Protestants, yes? It's about the cross and only the cross, and nothing outside of the cross. I submit to you is this. Seventh-day Adventists are just as obsessed with the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? It is the beginning point, and that gives merit to all the other things that Jesus is doing in the ministry right now, uh, in the sanctuary right now. Now, Protestants say there is no such thing as a heavenly sanctuary. It's all, it was started at the cross, and it all finished at the cross. They're obsessed with the courtyard ministry. There's another group of people out there. They're obsessed with the holy place ministry. What do we call them? Roman Catholics. You may be wondering, well, well, really? We're going to cover that in seminars four and five. And lastly, I'll say this. There's a group of people called separation Adventists. These are weird Adventists 
who are obsessed that Jesus is in the most holy place and that's the only thing we should know and everything else of the sanctuary it should be nullified and we have to worry about it. We're going to talk about this in, in, in seminar number five as well. Sanctuary message opens a complete system of truth, unlocks the great disappointment in 1844. It sets up us a what? A part. It reveals what Jesus is doing in heaven now. And I believe this last part is huge. You ask anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, hey, um, do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Nine out of nine times, 9.2 times, <laughs> the answer would be like, uh, uh, he's preparing a place for me in heaven? Hey, do you want to know more? They'll be, they'll be very curious. And if they love Jesus, they're not only curious, but they're obsessed to know what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Amen? Number three, sets us apart. I believe this is important. The sanctuary should be what sets us apart, not veggie meat. Amen? Amen. Not that we're living longer than everyone else. Now, praise the Lord for veggie meat. Amen? Okay, we have vegans here. <laughs> okay, praise the Lord that we have, we're living longer. But it's the sanctuary message that's... I'll stop there. Okay. And this is essential to the Adventist identity. And again, what the quote that we started off with, with Dudley Cannon, is this. Everything is built on the sanctuary, and if you don't believe this, everything what? Everything falls. And in every crisis of the church, people who have rejected the sanctuary message have logically and consistently left the faith. But those who have embraced the sanctuary message, it's not just one doctrine that we're embracing, but they've had a clearer picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John 1, 14, we read it one more time. The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Verse 20, chapter 25, verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. question is this. How many of you want to hang out with Jesus? How many of you want to commune with Jesus? Is that your prayer? Do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want to be where Jesus is at? That's our hope. That's the hope of glory. Amen, everybody? That's our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, what, what fantastic things must be happening in heaven right now. And Father, we thank you that you have given us droplets, granting us insight to what is happening in the heavenly sanctuary. Father, we are on this earth and we are tempted with a myriad of things. And some of these things are not essentially bad in nature, but they take our eyes away off of your ministry in heaven. Father, bless myself. Bless every person who can hear my voice. Lord, bless the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Bless GYC. Bless your people in your land, Lord. Father, we want to be reunited with you and we want to hang out with you. And whatever our desire is, we know that your desire must be infinitely large. So Father, grant us the heart of Jesus and the mind of Jesus and help us to understand what is happening in heavenly places. This is our humble prayer in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.